0: Episode 5 of State of the Nation. What we're doing today is talking about what's happening in crypto, like we do every week. We relate it to big picture stuff and then we drop some insights and action items. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We'll surprise you with who it is in a moment. We've got three or four topics to cover that are most relevant for the bankless community. Just as a quick reminder, we do this every Tuesday. We release release on YouTube, then we also release it in podcast version on Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe both to YouTube and the podcast so you're catching up on that. Um, The first question I always ask when we kick these things off is the same. David Hoffman, what is the state of the nation today, sir?
1: The state of the nation is hedged, and this is going to reveal some of the topics that we are about to talk about, but it's a mixed bag. Uh, we have all-time highs in stablecoins on Ethereum, and we also have all-time highs in banned addresses of those stablecoins on Ethereum. We have all-time highs in the valuations of DeFi tokens, and then we have absolutely all-time highs in flatness for both Ether and Bitcoin. Right. So there's a lot of uh, there's there's a tug of war going on between like really bullish sentiment and really worrying sentiment, uh, and so the state of the nation is hedged. All right, so when you say hedged, right?
0: So um, like crypto prices highly volatile doesn't feel really hedged. What do you mean by hedged, David?
1: Yeah, I mean there's this there's this tug of war going on between like De- DeFi is people are super bullish on DeFi. Chainlink just roared up to $8. Uh, one of our our one of our sponsors Ampleforth just just went from, no, from a $10 million market cap to $130 million market cap. Uh, and at the same time, like, you know, in the macro environment, BTC and, and, and therefore Ether are largely correlated to what from what we can see are largely correlated to uh, the legacy markets, which are largely correlated to coronavirus uh, and what, what the impact that coronavirus has. And so there's there's these two different forces at play and they are pretty much at opposites of each other. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, one
0: other area we're hedged against is Um, basically, uh, nation state actors, nation state kind of politics, um, the banking, the traditional banking system, we're not so much hedged from a financial uh, perspective, right? We still feel the volatility that reverberates through the the bankless alternative money system. But we are hedged against uh, certain things from a censorship perspective, right? And uh, I think that's going to be one of the topics that we get into today, the actual um, blacklisting, Of specific bank type stablecoins. So we'll get into all of those topics, we've got three or four for you, and a special guest. But before we dive in, we want to talk about our bankless state-of-the-nation sponsors. The first that I'm super excited about, use this wallet all of the time, is Argent. So Argent to me is the best Ethereum wallet for DeFi. It's the one I'm using if i'm on mobile it's got easy access to your favorite defi protocols like ave compound Pull together kyber and token sets plus you can access it with wallet connect this is secure easy to use it's a smart contract wallet so they add some additional features like social key recovery so you don't have to remember a 12 word 24 word key phrase they've got over 20 million in locked assets uh, so there's you know increasing lindy effect Uh, being poured into this. And best of all, it's a bankless wallet. So it's non-custodial. So go check out the Argent wallet, download it. If you haven't, start experimenting in DeFi. That's Argent, A-R-G-E-N-T dot X-Y-Z to find out more.
1: Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum that the bankless community absolutely loves. Uh, It's a place where you can go and deposit assets to take out a loan. And one of the best things about Aave is it allows you to pull out a stable loan where that interest rate doesn't shift under your feet, which is a really important tool for thinking in the long term, both as an individual, but perhaps also a business. In addition to these stable interest rate loans, they also have a flash loan protocol, which allows developers to get pretty creative with what they can enable their users to do. Uh, A flash loan is where you can borrow infinite amounts of whatever is available uh, for zero collateral, so long as you pay it back inside of the same transaction, inside the same block. So things can get pretty crazy. There's a lot of creativity untapped that we haven't really got into there yet. So developers, you are absolutely encouraged to go try and leverage the Aave flash loan protocol Flash Loan Protocol. Check them out at Ave.com. All right. Awesome. So now let's introduce our special
0: guest because the first topic we're going to talk about is where is the inflation? Uh, And we brought on someone I think is particularly um, apt to talk about that. He had a very successful meme last week, and that's Nick Carter from Castle Island VC. Uh, We've had him on the podcast before. And and, uh, David's about to do his video DJ stuff and beam Nick in as we speak. Um, so uh, Nick, are you on yet?
2: I'm here. Here I come. Awesome. <laughs> I'm beaming in. <laughs> nice work, David.
0: Uh, the magic
2: of technology. I so Nick, that you had one ha- swimmingly.
0: Yeah, it was perfect. It was flawless. <laughs> so, Nick, um, you had a super successful meme this week. Not only are you a uh, incredible writer. In the crypto space and thinker and also a venture capitalist but you sir are a meme artist to get ten thousand likes i think that's what we're at right now on on a meme is no small feat uh in in twitter especially when we're in this corner of, of crypto um and i want to actually show the meme you put out because i think there's um there's a lot of uh truth in it so i'm going to pop that up on the screen and then we're going to walk through that but uh, Nick, why don't you tell us, like what, what is the inspiration for uh, this meme that you created? You, say, you said, I think <laughs> the top of your post, is says, I've held off making this for too long.
2: <laughs> yeah, oh man. Well, thank you for congratulating me on the meme success. You know, all <laughs> the things that people congratulate me for, that's one of the most important. Um, so yeah, you know, the, the, the story behind the meme, you know, what can I say? Um, uh, the truth is, actually, I, I think I had a fight with my girlfriend that day, and I was feeling kind of down in the dumps. And I was like, you know what's going to perk me up? Like a real like, uh, serotonin boost or whatever the the chemical is yep. uh, from getting like a zillion impressions online.
1: Wow. <laughs> and
2: uh, I'm not even kidding. And, uh, you know, like I just knew that if I used the American Chopper template, like people would like it because it's the funniest template out there. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and I also like, I want to talk about inflation cause like inflation is such a, it's, <laughs> it's like the subject of so many like debates where people like talking past each other and like, they don't agree on common terms. And so I was like, all right, I'll do the inflation American chopper template, which is a very obvious one. Um,
0: Okay, so, so I'm, I like
2: I, I feel like even explaining the meme takes away the humor. <laughs> like, I know. I'm exactly. gonna do it anyway.
0: All right, all right. We'll, we'll we'll walk through it panel by panel. But I'm I'm sure you know people who are listening to this have seen the American Jobber meme. Um, a funny story. David and I, when we were uh, doing like a review for this and picking up topics, uh, we spent about 15 minutes doing that before the show, preparing. Uh, so a lot of time invested in these shows uh, for prep work, but. We honestly didn't know where the meme came from. Like I knew it was a reality TV show, but, um, had not seen it. And it's like an ancient meme. This is from like circa, what was it, David? Like 2003 or
1: so. I don't know when the, when the meme came from, but the video, the episode came out somewhere between like 2003 and 2008. So like it's very, very old TV show. Yeah. So we watched that,
0: we watched the clip by way of research. It's actually like um what are they the arguing guy? about? Okay, in, so uh, the, the
1: guy with the handlebar mustache is just yelling at the other guy for not showing up on time, taking too long of, of breaks, and overall just being like a lazy worker. And then the other guy says, "It doesn't matter because I still get my shit done." And so that's what <laughs> yeah. they're arguing about. It's a it's a
0: classic boomer versus millennial, I think, uh, trope. <laughs> you know, what
2: was funny here is that I kind of inverted it because the millennial talking points are being done by the old guy and some people are like how come the old guy is the one that has these like newfangled opinions on inflation and the answer is that i thought the old guy looked cooler so i wanted to make (laughs) him the hero of the story
0: he's definitely the hero
2: all right so let's
0: take this uh frame by frames
2: that's the beauty of it like you can sympathize with either guy you know so like this is this meme has wide appeal because like it's like the blue dress or like the silver dress or whatever like you can pick a side
0: yeah exactly all right so is right so handlebar mustache guy in the first panel he he goes he's yelling at baseball cap guy and he's saying the money supply is growing faster than the economy which necessarily means that inflation must be occurring so he's making the argument for inflation right
1: is that is that a one-to-one like if this then that Um, analysis like if the money supplies go is growing faster than the economy then therefore inflation is that just rock solid or or are there nuances there
2: it's not rock solid yeah so like i'm i'm also making fun of the debate itself in the meme right so i'm like parodying this inflation debate specifically um like i'm laughing at myself right because (laughs) i make these arguments and i'm acknowledging here that they're kind of stupid as well Okay, you so know.
0: handlebar mustache guy says that you know what we should go maybe through all the panels first, so so people get like because uh, people will be listening to this on podcast they won't have the visual in front of them. Um, handlebar mustache guy makes makes the claim that money supply is growing, and therefore inflation exists. Right, baseball cap millennial says CPI that's consumer price index demonstrates that inflation is low and stable despite monetary issuance. That's when things get heated. Handlebar mustache guy goes, financial assets have been bid up to record highs in valuation. There's your inflation. Kind of a drop the mic moment. Then chairs start flying. Millennial goes, assets like stocks and property are capital goods, which consumers don't need to buy and so aren't indicative of QE-driven inflation. TVs are cheap, right? Uh, it continues. <laughs> now, handlebar mustache is getting really angry. You can almost see the spittle flying out of his mouth as he in this last panel. And he says, offshoring and tech are deflationary. So TVs are cheap, but goods that cancel on insiders buy, like property, education, healthcare, have been bid up alongside issuance, and demonstrate its inflationary effects. So I said that in a relatively monotone tone, but um, this guy is clearly yelling. The last panel, right? So it's the it's it's the classic. We're not like inflation is happening because money supply is increasing side of the, the argument and the other side is saying cpi isn't going up therefore inflation doesn't exist
2: so yeah what's your take like like who's right in this meme nick well clearly i sympathize with handlebar mustache guy okay. <laughs> for sure which is why i gave him the last word right like i didn't let baseball cap guy get another word in because there's more to the debate you know what would right, so. what, what would a, f- a fifth panel be Um, what would a response be? Um, probably a rehash of like the, the third panel.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So this seems to me like this devolves right into a uh, subjective discussion as to what should be involved with the CPI or not. Like do, does real estate, does property, capital assets, like investments, do they belong uh, in, to be included in some sort of inflation metric? Uh, And I think the fact that perhaps that they're not is indicative of why there's wealth disparity.
2: Yeah. So this is really a meme about like how you would measure the impact of the injection of new money on society. And, you know, a lot of people think it's very contrived that the government produces the metric, which is used to measure inflation, which is like suspiciously always pretty low, even if it seems to us like we're young dudes, you know, we are renting in urban centers or buying property anyway you know like so we're young guys we um are experiencing the effects of property um call it inflation or like Mm -hmm. appreciation in property values in urban centers um we know what it's like to have student loans and um there's a significant delta between the cost of an education now and median incomes in this country so you know, if you look at these more comprehensive metrics in terms of the things that you actually need to buy to have a fulfilling life, that's not just the price of eggs, you know, and these like consumer purchases. That's bigger things like education um, and arguably financial assets. Like financial assets are how people save for retirement in this country. And if the price of financial assets is very high relative to their earnings, which is the case today, you're frozen out from saving. So you don't have the ability to build like a financial portfolio that's going to shepherd you towards retirement. So that's really the broader point here is that the price of financial assets does matter. It's, it's you know, it matters to the middle class in particular because uh, the way that they build wealth is through home equity and through owning a share of, uh, you know, the SP 500. And if these are effectively too expensive for people to actually get a toehold into, that wealth generating and savings process they're going to be frozen out and i think that's a really big part of the reason why there's so much strife in the us today is because people feel that they don't even have the chance to get on that ladder in the first place mm-hmm. it's not worth it to get a white collar professional job um, because you know you have to pay ex- exorbitant rent you know in downtown to live there you know you don't really have a chance getting a down payment on a house uh, you're coming out of school incredibly indebted, so people just feel miserable, and they feel that they're totally frozen out of the system. And to me, that's the real effect of, uh, you know, asset price inflation. Uh, call it inflation, call it something else. We know that asset prices um, have massively run up in the last decade, and I think a lot of that is attributable to quantitative easing. Um, you know, I mean, that like if you want to take issue with one thing, you would try and maybe take issue with the causality of their monetary issuance and asset prices. But yeah, that's effectively the crux of the debate.
1: So Bitcoiners love the phrase Bitcoin fixes this. And I, and I think the way that they would apply that, that line to this is the fact that like the CPI, if we want to have a fair money, the CPI of a money should include all things like the whole world of all prices everywhere ubiquitously and the only way that you would ever get that is to have a money that is outside of the control of any one individual person because if we want to take a uh, m- malicious perspective on what the cpi is the cpi is just a tool to uh re reprice out or m- move certain assets out of the purview of the average american right so anything that anything that uh, you know anything that is capital, right? Anything that returns wealth to its owners, just we just price that out of what money is. Uh, and so I think this is why Bitcoiners will be like, Bitcoin fixes this, because Bitcoin is something that the CPI of Bitcoin is just the whole world, just all assets and goods everywhere equally. Is that a fair take?
2: Yeah, I would say Bitcoin, quote unquote, in theory, fixes this in two ways. So one, it's like a good stable measuring stick. So the issue with the dollar is that the dollar is like really measured against other currencies. I would say like, forget like consumer goods. Like if you wanna measure the strength of the dollar, you measure it against an index, a trade-weighted index of all the other currencies. But those currencies are also being uh, effectively inflated too at like a consistent rate. So you don't have an absolute measure of like the purchasing power of the dollar. You have a relative measure and that's relative to all these other inflationary currencies. So you're not really getting a lot of reliable information out of that, right? And then you have to return to things like gold. You measure things against gold, which is like what Austrians like to do. So Bitcoin, you know, is is fixed, right? So um, the supply is fixed. So in theory, the price of Bitcoin contains more information than the price of the dollar. Um, the, you know, the second way that Bitcoin, quote unquote, in theory, fixes this would be it's a new monetary good as opposed to the existing dominant monetary goods in the U S which are property and capital assets like equities. Those are the main ones. The dollar is like, you know, people don't hold the dollar for savings purposes for good reason. So it's kind of like been demonetized uh, as a savings device. Um, But so, you know, the way that like Bitcoin and like cryptocurrencies potentially help alleviate this issue as far as like young people that are entering their or in in the midstage of their careers, like us, is it's an alternative savings device, which hasn't been bit up like crazy by the boomers and the central bank money spigot. And so it's like you're getting in on the ground floor instead of with equities, you have to get in at a price earnings ratio of 30, which is historically double the average. So that's, that's the other way. So if, if, you know, cryptocurrencies really monetize, I wouldn't say they have yet, um, riding that monetization wave you wanna be in now so it's, it's more the maturity of that asset matches our career trajectories, as opposed to you're buying the top if you're buying property or equity in this country. That's just the fact of it. You're buying like the top in kind of a generational sense.
0: Yeah, I, so the, the idea of the the Cantillon effect is is basically those closest to the money spigot get the benefit, namely those that are uh, holding assets that the money spigot essentially rewards. So those are you know S and P five hundred. I um we're actually we're having Ben Hunt on the podcast later this week, and he talks a lot about the uh, kleptocracy, right? The oligarchy that is basically uh, pillaging the the U S right now. I um, read something over the weekend. Um, there could potentially be between 20 and 28 million Americans, U.S. citizens evicted uh, over the coming eight months. So 10 million over five years was um, the, the great recession numbers in terms of eviction, uh, 20 to 28 million. Yet at the same time, we have peak NASDAQ price, right? Um, what I don't understand, right? Like I understand why the Fed's doing it, right? They have kind of their their set of instruments, and so they've got their their hammer and their screwdriver and they use those instruments. Um, but the rest of the federal government, uh, do they not see that this massive inequality, these people that are getting left behind, whether it's millennials uh, or God God forbid, Gen Z, right? Or whether it's you know, the middle class, essentially, they're going to be pretty pissed about this. Like, doesn't this, I mean, end in some kind of a revolution? You can think of crypto as one... Tentacle of that revolution, but there are other revolutions uh, as well. Like, ha-
2: what are the 2020s going to be like? I mean, is this just all going to bubble to the top? I mean, I think actually, and I don't want to delegitimize like the protests that we've seen already, but I think part of the anger does have to do with this exact phenomenon, uh, in addition to like the obvious like racial inequality component that's part of that. So I think part of the reason people are so outraged right now is because they feel frozen out and they may not understand, you know, mechanically, really precisely um, how and why, like what the mechanisms of their destruction are, but I think they just emotionally understand. My hopes of getting, of entering and staying in the middle class and being upwardly mobile are now worse than they've pretty much ever been at any point in American history, right? Um, Millennials are the first... Really downwardly mobile generation. And I really do believe that it has to do with ap- asset prices and our kind of demographic shift and the fact that we've stacked on so much debt, which the bills are going to come due and it's going to come due on our generation. And I think if we get a revolution, my guess is that something's going to change. Um, hopefully it's peaceful as opposed to like the French Revolution or something. Um, if they got. If if uh, if all we got was a crypto revolution, that would be the best case scenario, right? Because that would be f- bloodless, that would be certain goods get demonetized and other goods get monetized. Uh, and there's winners and there's losers, but that would be a- effectively a peaceful transition. I'm not optimistic that that's all we're gonna get, right? Mm. Um, I think, and you asked like why Congress or the government isn't acknowledging this, I would say, as far as the Fed is concerned, there's tremendous inertia in central banking. It's a, you know, intellectual development there is very slow. Um, and they have a specific mandate, which they're, in their opinion, they're trying to meet that mandate. Um, so I'm not surprised that there has been a slowness of reckoning there. Well, Nick, I- you, you actually
0: had Fed, uh, Fed chair members, right? Or Federal Reserve representatives, like,
2: respond to this meme? Uh members of, of regional feds. Yeah. So like um David the St. And, Louis and, Fed. Yeah, David Andolfero, who's um part of the St. Louis Fed, um <laughs> mentioned, he's he he retweeted the meme. He's like, Yeah, this is like not a bad discussion, actually. Um, oh, he retweeted so. it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because like it's accessible and it really captures um a debate which has been rumbling for a long time, but um I guess the debate never gets conveyed in meme format. So This is new. Um, But yeah, you know, like I think with Congress, we actually are seeing the beginnings of a transformation and this understanding that uh, income and wealth inequality is extreme and asset prices are uh, partly to blame for that, um, or they're at least a manifestation of a fairly broken system. And we're seeing a rebellion against capital, against um, even property rights, um, and an embrace of. Um, effectively, like proto-socialism, you know, AOC is probably the best representative of this doctrine. Uh, of course, that's maybe not the... the <laughs> That's not, like, the mechanism that I would endorse to deal or reckon with the situation, but that's, I think, a symptom or a, a reaction, which is, is going to get louder and louder. Uh, but yeah, Congress also... The composition changes slowly, and you know, um, populism takes a while to to make its mark. But, um, you know, you could also say Trump's election was also partly reaction to this. Um, you know, big part of his platform was re-onshoring American jobs. Um, it's, it's precisely this financial system that we have today with the dollar's primacy, which led to the offshoring of those jobs in the first place. Uh, so we are seeing reverberations in the electorate already. My guess is that Uh, 2020, the election also continues on that trend. I think we'll have a lot more millennial Congress people.
1: I I totally think there's like this um, bubbling energy at the bottom of all of these. And we see it arise in so many different ways. And one of the ways that we see it arise is the fact that this meme in particular blew blew the fuck up right and so that to me that illustrates that same energy that like elected donald trump or is pushing uh, aoc into into a power not not power yeah power um yeah and so
2: like no she has power she's one of the most yeah. powerful members of congress people just don't realize it yeah
1: absolutely right and like we are giving her that power because of this energy right and the energy that got people into the streets to protest and i totally agree with you it wasn't necessarily a A Black Lives Matter protest. It was a anti-state protest because the state is the institution that is keeping the powerful elite the way that they are, which then manifests itself as like a racial issue at the same time. Uh, And I'm coming. And one of my questions for you is like, to what degree is the uh, what is being described in this meme, the the Cantillon effect? To what degree does that basically define the current issues across the world? Is it like one of the biggest? economic forces that d- it defines the current state of the world? Or is it just one force among many? Like, what measure does the Cantillon effect really just create the reality around us? Or is just a part of the puzzle?
2: Well, um, the Cantillon effect is a very useful term in terms of precisely defining a source of inequality. But the main thing that's really happening in the world is we're on year roughly speaking forty of a fiat fully fiat regime and the we're we're on year forty of the global reserve currency being a fiat currency, which is the first time really um, you know previously the glo- the global reserve currency might have been the pound, but it really was gold right and so we finally severed that link to um like genuine matter and we moved on to this world of really complete and total abstraction and we've seen lots of financial crises uh the modern central banking doctrine hasn't made our financial system any more stable if anything it's become more unstable in those 40 years and i think we're really at the terminus you know we're the system is clearly degenerating in front of our eyes and um, the world is reckoning with the dollar being its, its reserve currency. There's lots of sovereign currency failures happening right now. And um, emerging markets, really, actually, the whole world is completely overloaded with debt, uh, which which I think you know that these debt levels are now at, at a place where they can't really be reckoned with without a devaluation or a default, right? Those are your two tools. You either say you're not going you're just gonna start up not repay the debt like Argentina. Or you can just debase the currency so that the debt load becomes much lower in real terms, which is how more developed nations basically get rid of debt loads. And what that is, a default is a transfer of wealth um, away from debtors um, or in favor of debtors, right? So I think we are going to see jubilees here. We're going to see wholesale currency devaluations. To me, that's the most politically amenable way we'll get out of this situation as opposed to austerity. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that, you know, the Kinzalon effect is a, a precise definition of an important concept, which people don't pay attention to, but the really big trend here is that we're, we're at the end of a ma- kind of a macroeconomic super cycle and there's a huge amount of pent up energy and it's going to be unleashed in the next decade. And it's going to be amazingly disruptive in particular to um, middle-class wealth
0: yeah absolutely. great great weigh in on that. as as you can see, uh, there there's a ton of thought behind a simple meme like that. And um Nick, um thanks for sharing that with us. it's been great to have you on. Hey, do you have a few minutes to stick on stick around and actually talk about our next topic because we're
2: gonna talk about stable coins. You have a few minutes? Of course, yeah, sorry, the sirens outside. The- <laughs> no worries, Nick always has probably- time
1: for stable coins. <laughs> that's
2: COVID related, is my guess. But yeah, of course.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, David, we should do uh, our second round of of sponsors, and we should then we can dig into the next topic. So I want to tell you guys about diversify. Diversify is a decentralized exchange. It's a professional grade exchange. So that's high fee, high speed, low fee, it's private and it's deeply liquid. The way they do that is through some roll-up technology. So it's kind of a, a side chain that's also secured by the Ethereum main chain. My question is, why use a centralized exchange at all? We are starting to get to the place with solutions like Diversify, where DEXs are as good as centralized exchanges. They also have a um, a, a token called NEC, uh, which is NEC, which is a perpetually deflationary to, uh, token. So they have a buyback and burn scheme similar in some ways to Maker. These guys had the original uh, liquidity mining token back in in 2008, but what you have to do is go check out their exchange. Um, The user experience is phenomenal. It'll remind you a lot of Coinbase or Binance or Kraken that you use today. Uh, That's at diversify.com. We will include a link in the show notes.
1: Our next sponsor is Ampleforth. Ampleforth is a token, a sound base money experiment, which I I particularly think is is rather interesting. Uh, So it's very much like Bitcoin in the sense that it's non-dilutive. So when you own a share of the Ampleforth tokens, you are guaranteed to be owning that same share of all of them. However, the amount of Ampleforth tokens that you own will always change because the token tracks a dollar, and so where the price of Ampleforth is inelastic, the supply of Ampleforth is completely elastic. Uh, and so they, they are uh, spinning out their, their Geyser system, which is a kind of a yield farming mechanism uh, in, in hopes to uh, distribute and um, uh, spread out the AMPL token to as many different holders as possible. So if you are interested in participating in the Geyser incentive mechanism, you can check them out at Ampleforth.com.
0: All right, next topic, guys. Nick, we're we're glad you're still hanging with us, and that, that's this. This is uh, we could talk more broadly about stablecoins, Nick, and you you put out a fantastic white paper about that that I'd love to get to. But first, we've got to talk about the main topic issue, which is the crypto dollar banhammer. So USDC got its first banhammer. Uh, one address was blocked. So inside of the USDC smart contracts, so all of these tokens uh, essentially are, are smart contracts on Ethereum. Um, Coinbase and its affiliated bank banking partners through the Center organization have the ability to um, blacklist certain accounts, right? So they can essentially say, "Hey, this ETH address is involved in behavior that breaks our terms of, of service. It's suspicious," and they have detailed terms of service of what kind of they, they deem um, block worthy. Uh, They haven't yet executed a blacklist move until this point in time, but they did last week. Um, What are your thoughts on that guys? I guess maybe uh, start, start with you, Nick. Is this, is this kind of to be expected? Is this kind of a, like, um, you know, um, this is what everyone signed up for crypto. These are what bank stable coins are. This is sort of to be expected or is this, something uh, more sinister, is this a reason to think and look more closely at crypto native coins like Bitcoin and ether uh, and even stable coins that are more algorithmically derived like a a DAI?
2: Yeah, great question. I think obviously there's a clear hierarchy in terms of the counterparty risk and just the, there's more ambulances out here. Uh, (laughs) in, In terms of the quality, uh, of the settlement quality uh, and the ownership characteristics in these assets. And crypto native assets are at the very top. And then stable coins, which are derived from crypto native collateral, are obviously better. And then these fiat backed stable coins are the most convenient, but there's enormous embedded risks. One of them is that you, your account gets frozen. Um, I would say that the blacklist isn't you know surprising really to me i don't think to anyone um the big big question is can usdc actually remain on this blacklist model because if you think about it the blacklist model is actually incredibly progressive when you compare it with something like paypal or venmo you know a few analysts have pointed this out uh jp koenig in particular uh pointed out that you know those stablecoin issuers have a relationship with the people creating or redeeming the stablecoin, but they don't really have a relationship. They don't really have an ability to track or monitor everyone else. Now they might claim they do, you know, like with um, chain analysis and stuff. But like fundamentally, your ability to do that is limited, right? Um, especially as like anonymizing smart contracts get created, for instance. Uh, so, so you know. E- you actually have an awareness of like a relatively small share of the network activity, which is much, it's much more similar to a genuine digital cash standard than, uh, you know, than. well, it's basically the closest thing we have to a digital cash standard in the world today. Um, So far regulators have sort of indicated that they don't want that to exist. So the fact that, fiat-backed stablecoins using a blacklist as opposed to a whitelist model actually exist is kind of amazing to me. Uh, and I think that'll be the big, big fight you know in the next year or so with FATF and the stablecoin issuers and the banks, basically. Can this relatively low encumbrance model actually survive?
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a fascinating um, thought process. And you know, the interesting thing, uh, I'm sharing my screen now, is that you can see in the kind of the crypto world, somebody put this together on an analytics website called Dune Analytics, which is basically going to track the banned USDC addresses over time. So just as Nick was saying, um, with a stable coin like US- USDC, uh, Coinbase is not identifying all the individuals. There's no AML, KYC for every individual ETH address that holds that asset. That would be more like the PayPal, P- PayPal or Venmo model that we have today. Once you've entered into the USDC uh, ecosystem, essentially. You have kind of free reign to send it whatever address that you want without any identity being linked. Um, But they do have this ability to essentially blacklist certain accounts and freeze it. And this one, I think, how much was it? Um, 100K maybe? Yeah, 100 USDC. Um, and you can see it right on chain, so you can see as this happens. So that adds a level of of transparency to the playing field that we didn't have before. They can't freeze addresses necessarily in the dark; um, they have to do it in the light. Um, and other other stablecoins have done this too. So USDC or uh, USDT, Tether has done this. This is the Eric Wall tweet. Um, almost a million dollars of USDT has been frozen um, previously. So twenty-two. Ethereum accounts, that's this year. So it is going on um, as we speak. But but as you mentioned, Nick, it is, um, it is a different model. I don't know what JP's thoughts are, who you mentioned. I almost get the sense when I read some of his work that he's like, hey, um, you know, the government should kind of look into this and maybe close some of those loopholes because it's not fair. <laughs> I don't know if like what you think, but um, it, it feels like that would be certainly a, a hamper on the banker stablecoin industry, if it it was squeezed tighter from a regulatory perspective,
2: totally. And you know, if, today you have de facto anonymity if you're using a fiat-backed stablecoin. There's like a small risk that your transaction or account will be frozen, but there have been millions of transactions with Tether and USDC. I don't know how many exactly. I'd have to look at the number and how many of them. Resulted in a freezing. Now compare that to PayPal. You can get your PayPal or your Venmo account frozen if you put like Cuba in the memo field of a transaction, right? If you say Cuban sandwich, there's a risk you get frozen. So th- the the level of discretion and intervention from the administrator side is many orders of magnitude more in the in the in the PayPal uh, system as opposed to a fiat stable stablecoin. So And honestly, I don't think blacklisting hundreds of thousands of addresses is a scalable thing at all. So to me, the blacklist model is fundamentally different and it's much more like a digital cash standard online. And uh, we'll see if it can survive. I mean, opinions might differ on whether it should survive or we should have that anti-fragility proven out for the, for the less fragile systems like Dai, or just you know native crypto units in the first place um i think it's basically the number one kind of battle to follow over the next year
1: i think there are two big uh two big points to bring up here one of them is one of them is that i i don't think it's possible for us to go to a whitelist model because the cat's out of the bag like pandora's box is opened like turning usdc from a uh, blacklist model to a whitelist model would cause so much havoc right there i don't see an elegant solution to doing that uh there's it would be catastrophic it would be catastrophic for both for individuals and for applications on ethereum that are legitimately using usdc in a in a i I mean i'm not a lawyer but in my my opinion a an over the uh, uh an appropriate way right and so and and just trying to unravel that there's so much diffusion with usdc like what are you going to and there's over a billion dollars on ethereum like what are you going to do you're going to just you know revoke usdc from people that you don't even know who they are one of them might be me one of them might be my company um how i don't understand how that and so And at the same time, there is the expressivity of do you need this address blacklisted because I can do that for you. Like we do have solutions at the table, which I think will appease the regulators. Yeah, the the mechanism of
2: turning it into a whitelist model is is not clear to me. I mean, I guess you could cancel redeemability Mm -hmm. uh, for all but a select few. And then people that know that they wouldn't pass the strong KYC or whatever would then have to sell it at a discount, basically. Mm-hmm. But it would be yeah, it'd amazingly be bad. disruptive it would if be that bad.
0: happened. Ironically, I feel like our greatest, crypto's greatest defense against this is getting traditional banks uh, more deeply involved. So JP Morgan starts issuing its stable coin directly on a public blockchain network like Ethereum, right? Well, now you've got big finance who are starting to, like, and they've got a powerful lobby, obviously. We're just talking about the Cancelon effect. Um That seems to be a strong defense. It's almost kind of the defense that the internet had. It became so damn useful, right? And um, big companies and the broader economy became so dependent on it that cow's out of the bag and governments, nation states could not block it uh, for fear of getting left behind other nation states that leave it open and free.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I agree, like it was quite easy for the government to kill eGold. Uh, or to Reserve back in the day. I'm not saying those are perfect analogs, but that was easy because they had like 100,000 users max um, and the stakes were much lower. But if you're talking about, you know, thousands of American businesses that are using these systems and potentially millions of Americans, and you're going to try and just bring down the banhammer hammer um, for systems that have lots of legitimate use, maybe some illegitimate use too, but lots of legitimate use, you know, they're just fundamentally an alternative settlement rails. Um, we're, we're kind of reaching a threshold here where it's gonna be very difficult politically to, to effectively destroy these systems. Like, as you, you can't really put the toothpaste back in the tube kind of thing. Um, so maybe that's how we, we kind of win rights in the internet domain is, you know, we demand the, the right to have um, genuine, uh, de- genuine digital cash standard, which does not exist today. There's no digital equivalent to cash, which is dollar denominated, uh, that exists in the financial system. There's nothing with a settlement quality of real cash. Um, So it could be that this is how we win it, just through the sheer force of numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's
0: why, you know, part of the the bankless nation, we we talk uh, very much about not needing banks, not needing crypto banks as a path forward to the future. But that's not the full story is because um, I feel like very much we do need them as a bridge, um, particularly now to legitimize the industry and to essentially provide a heat shield to the nation states. Um, So I, you know, I have a somewhat divided opinion myself on that. Like um, I don't love the blacklist. That's not like crypto anarchists. That's not super, um, (laughs) super bankless. But at the same time, we need crypto banks as a bridge mm-hmm. to fiat and to embrace mm-hmm. this tech if we want the wider movement to succeed. Sorry, David, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, at the, at the very least, the technology that crypto offers us offers us like a weapon, right? It offers us a check upon banks. And so the mere existence of open permissionless protocols is is what created this in the first place. And that kind of brings us to the conversation of DAI, right? So we had $100,000 worth of USDC revoked. I don't know, a, a lot more of Tether that was blacklisted. Anyone who got Tether blacklisted from them or USDC blacklisted, they're not going to use that product again. They're going to use DAI probably as the most permissionless, censorship-resistant, stablecoin, crypto dollar that that's out there, right? And the amounts of that got blacklisted versus the total supply of DAI is significant, right? There's 190 million DAI out there. And what got blacklisted was like $500,000, almost maybe a million dollars. And so... I think there's also going to be a conversation coming between, like, users of USDC versus users of DAI because illicit users of USDC are going to be pushed into DAI. And I'm worried about DAI's branding as, like, why are you using DAI, bro? Like, just use USDC. Like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you up to? Like, what, what, are you, what is your transaction's history even look like? Why, why, do, why do you even need to use DAI? Uh, and so i'm kind of worried about like the nation state stance towards dai because they're pushing all the illicit activity out of usdc
2: that's a really interesting point i think it's paul stork talks about having meta privacy so as you like not only having privacy when you transact but having the notion of transacting with a specific system not being considered to be illegitimate because it's primarily used for illicit purposes or what is perceived to be illicit. So that that's a great point about potentially not having meta privacy when used DAI. Um, I don't know if you guys have read the FATF uh, report on the quote unquote so called stable coins. Yeah. It actually makes for pretty interesting reading. Um, so I definitely recommend reading it to get a sense of what regulators really think about this stuff. And they do directly contrast DAI and uh, Fiat Act stable coins, or not DAI by name, but they, Implicitly so-called refer to coins. it. Um, so called stable coins. And what they say is, yeah, decentralized stable coins are very hard to regulate in any way. But they they basically say they're not as worried about it because they don't think that they're going to grow as large as fiat backed stable coins. But they do say that that's like kind of a strategic worry that they're like monitoring and that kind of thing. So they totally acknowledge the difference in in decentralization.
0: We'll include that um, report actually in the notes today because it's a fascinating report. And I think um, one of the few I've read from a, um, a group like that, that actually understands the distinction between these stable coins. They totally got it. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, it,
2: it, I don't know if we want these people to be the sophisticated ones about it. Right. But, uh, yeah, they get it.
0: Yeah. And they're advising you know, the G7 and um, central bankers um, around the world. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Nick, um, this has been... Absolutely phenomenal to, to have you on. I, I wanna do uh, one more plug. So Nick and Castle Island put out a phenomenal paper, a white paper on um, stable coins this w- last week that you absolutely have to check out. In, in fact, there's a. would love to chat with you about this maybe sometime in the future, Nick, um, the entire section that um, that you guys put together on a new dawn uh, for free banking. Um, so we will include that a link to that white paper in the show notes and um, look look through the whole paper, but in particular, page 21 and 22 and 23 are where you're gonna find um, this kind of a model of free banking from kind of the, the Scottish archetype to crypto banks, to the things that DeFi is, is trying to do with with systems like Maker, um, just a, a great read. So um, make sure you take a look at that and, and well done, Nick. That's a, g- a great paper. I don't know um, how you guys find the time to put all this stuff together, but it's great. We appreciate it. It's an it.
2: important topic. So I we wanted to bring attention to it and also translate it to a language that non-crypto people would understand. So as you can tell, it's kind of actually meant, I mean, it, it's a great reference for crypto people, but it's also really meant as something that outsiders could dig their teeth into and understand, hey, wow, this crypto phenomenon is interesting. There's um, this enormous parallel financial infrastructure, which has been built out and is being used So I wanted to introduce outsiders to these practitioners that are basically vindicating this as a financial infrastructure, as opposed to just a mere asset class. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You did a great job with that. Um, Nick, it's been phenomenal to have you. Thank you so much for joining State of the Nation today.
2: Thanks, guys. Take care.
0: David, uh, how much more time do we have, sir? Uh, We are hitting the 50-minute mark. Okay, well, that's a bit long. Yeah, that's a um, bit long. Yeah. Good so stuff. Lots of stuff to talk about. Lots of stuff to talk about. You know what? Um, maybe we should just kind of cut it off now, you think? Um, and uh, leave some of these other topics. We're going to talk put about... Him the. the, pack, the right? Yep. Back put them <laughs> in the backpack. Put them in the backpack. We're going to talk about the Coinbase IPO. I guess in short, guys, um, Coinbase is looking like they are going to IPO at some point, maybe this year even. We think that is extraordinarily bullish for... Uh, for the entire crypto asset class legitimizing we'll wall right? legitimizing people yeah.
1: people love shovels people want to invest in shovels and coinbase is a shovel and having that being available on the public stock market is super legitimizing and it, it'll just look very well uh, around the rest of crypto yeah i think it's going to draw the eyes of wall street certainly also even just
0: the transparency alone so you know when they they, they publish quarterly earnings reports and ten Ks and those sorts of things. They're going to have to list out all of their annual sales, how much Bitcoin, how much ETH they sold. It'll be phenomenal to have that. So that's big, um, and I think lines up with our you know thesis of this is twenty sixteen. You know, the, there's a lot of things building that could explode at any point in time. The last thing we will include a link to our first Bankless nation drop so this is a community drop with the bzx token don't have time to get into it today but we'll include a item in the show notes and for your action items list if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the bankless nation and all the things that were going on there's this thing called a bankless token badge that you can pick up Uh, become a subscriber pick that up and you can start uh, participating in bankless governance national governance um, items and uh, there's actually going to be a token drop To NFT holders, token holders, that um, is coming, I I believe, sometime today or tomorrow. We actually don't have control of that. They basically, the issuers themselves look at the list and they see the value of the Bankless Nation, the community, and they're like, "We want your engagement. We want your governance help." And they issue tokens to our uh, to NFT addresses that hold the the tokens. So it's it's a pretty exciting development. I think this is the first maybe community drop that I've seen that is really member-based. Yeah, I think
1: there's a huge rabbit hole of conversation to go down. And I do hope at one point into the future, we do talk about that. But part of the vision of, of, and why we call this a bankless nation, is because it has its constituency, right? So you, the listener, are part of the bankless nation. And so uh, I, I think as a political force, the bankless nation is cohering together slowly and we're, we're just we're rallying the troops and giving every, getting everyone into the same room so that our voices are louder together. Right. Like we all want to have we all deserve uh, participation in the greater Ethereum ecosystem. And as a result, all these applications, this is the vision, the applications will arise and look to tap into the power and influence of the bankless nation. And they're they're going to do that with these sort of token drops, these governance drops to the bankless badge holders, which is why you should get a bankless badge. Yeah, you definitely should. And you know, it's exactly what we said, David, I mean the reason this is so important is because
0: God bless the VCs, God bless the crypto banks. We don't want them as the primary and only shareholders in governance decisions for our DeFi protocols, right? We we want individual retail users like you to be involved in the governance process. That's how we decentralize. And the protocols want that too. They recognize that that's key for their success. So I think this is a win for everybody. We're gonna wrap it right there. Um, Action items today, you've got a few reading assignments. So read the crypto dollars report that Nick Carter put out with Castle Island. We will include a link to the show notes. Also check out the bankless badge drop will include a link to that as well uh david wrote a fantastic article last week david um you actually um did on on the channel too you have a a Um, audio recording of it with you you reading it. You want to give a tease on that?
1: Yeah, so take your pick. If you like to read or listen, maybe because you're listening to this, you are a listener. Uh, So you can go to the Bankless YouTube and check me reading out that article to you, or you can just go straight to the Bankless website and get the article in Word form. It's called... uh, the put global public goods in the protocol sink. The protocol sink is a theme that you have heard many times on this show. Uh, and we really pull back the layers as to what that thing actually is. What is at the bottom of the protocol sink? It's an it's a meaningful question and I offer my answer to it. So check that out. Right, that's it from us. That was episode five. The state
0: of the bankless nation is hedged. We are hedged against nation state politics. We have an alternative money system. We have an alternative economy and we are headed west. Thank you so much for joining us.